Recorded live. All right, wonderful. So let me start with this. I, I've come now, let's see, I think this is my sixth or seventh trip in one year. I don't think I've ever been to any church except my home church that much in one year. And it is just wonderful to be back here with you. Um, I've been looking forward to this event for a long time. I, uh, you know, I'm talking this morning for Sunday morning. If you aren't aware, we're also doing the conference. So that means tonight at 6 o'clock, I believe it is. I don't know. But I'll look at my assistant. 6 o'clock tonight, uh, we're having a service. And then tomorrow evening from 6 o'clock to about 9 o'clock, we'll have, we'll have two more sessions. And we're filming these for the Supernatural Bible School, which, to give you an update, uh, the last time I was here was back at the beginning, at the beginning of September, the end of uh, August. And then Karen's been here since then. And I had announced back then we had around um, 200 students or so. We now actually have 410 students in the Supernatural Bible School. So it's just... It's, it's literally blown the doors off of any dream that I had when we did, when I filmed, I went out in March this last year and stood out in uh, my driveway and the woods in the background and we filmed our first promotional video saying, you know, hey, come join the school. I, in my heart, I was believing, saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to believe for 150 students by August 1st. And August 1st came, we had 152 students. So, okay. I'm going to really put my faith, we're going to believe for, by September 17th, we've got about six weeks before school starts, we'll believe for 300. Well, we were over 300, and by the time we finally closed registration and the beginning of October, we had about 410 students. So it has just gone ridiculous. And uh, inside of that, we have 42 different states that are watching, and we have uh, 20 countries that are represented. So this has just gone totally wild, and, and I love the fact that we got to do it together, that we all have been a part of this, and that we're, we're impacting so far. Um, one of the things that, that, that the focus of this conference that we're going to be doing, and this will be technically like our first session, so we might go a little bit longer than a normal Sunday morning. If you get done before I do, that's okay. Um, but uh, it... it uh, the focus is called the first annual end of the world conference. It's, it's meant to be humorous. The first annual, and we could probably have it every year for a long, long time, but uh, it's one of these things that eschatology is an area I love to study, and it's an area that I love to teach about, but it's, you know, you think about eschatology, which, which I'll explain that word in a minute, but it's basically the study of the end times, that it's kind of like the, the piece of theology that's like the weird kid that ends up in the corner that nobody wants to play with. It's like, ah, oh, you know, not, not that kid. And he ends up in the corner and nobody wants to play with him. And then once in a while, really, you know, somebody gets into it and you're like, oh, man, now that one kid, he's just hanging out with the other weird kid and you leave him alone. And so often it ends up in the corner because it's so confusing nowadays. And it never was to begin with. I mean, it, it's kind of like you can read through this and you can read, you can read 
this is a Bible, by the way. Um, you, can, <laughs> you can read through your Bible, and the story seems so simple. You know, you have Garden of Eden, and then you have Father Abraham, and you have the flood, and you have, you know, these stories that, yes, they're deep, yes, they're profound, but they're very straightforward. But you get to the very, very, very end of the book, and you're like, I don't know what just happened. You know, it's just like, ah! <laughs> and everything else seems like, okay, Jesus, that makes sense. The Old Testament is, you know, like a wild story, but it's, it's pretty, you know, easy to understand on its surface. But you get to the very end, and it's like, well, everybody fights about that. And because I didn't go and get some big doctorate, why, why would I even bother trying to understand it? You know, theologians have been arguing about it, it seems, forever. Does anybody relate to that thought? And my parents, uh, both, they met, they married at Bible college back in the early 70s. And the college they went to presented three different views of the end times. And fortunately, they actually said, you can pick whichever one you want to believe. We're not forcing one on you. Now, that's different because there are whole denominations well-known ones I won't name, but there are whole denominations where if you're a pastor in that denomination, you have to sign a paper every single year saying, I believe this about the end times. If you won't sign on the dotted line, you're kicked out as being a pastor in that denomination. Denominations you would know if I mentioned their name, and yet most of us don't know that because we're not pastors in that denomination. And within that kind of controlling thought structure, you're not able to think outside of this one box because you could lose your job, your church, your career, your, your livelihood. You could lose everything that you've been involved with for decades. So it's easier just to go, it's probably safer to not study it because I might end up believing something that will get me in a lot of trouble. Now, being an itinerant minister, I have a little more freedom because I can... I can study and I can spend the time and I can look into these things. And the household I grew up in, my parents were what they called pan-trib, meaning it'll all just pan out in the end. <laughs> a lot of people in that, that age group in the 50s have taken on that point of view where they just took on pan-millennial or pan-trib. It'll all work out. God will do whatever he's going to do and we'll just live our life the best that we can in the meantime. I understand that point of view, but for, for us in our generation, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work because with the way that the technology is going, with the movies that are being put out, with the focus on all these different things, we need to make a decision as to are we going to be ones that advance the kingdom or are we, are we living in fear of what's going to come in the future? Are we going to think long-term? Are we going to think generational? If we can't get this straight, it really messes with your thinking for long term. There's a book that was written in 1988 that was published called 88 Reasons Jesus Will Return in 1988. We laugh, and that's good. We should laugh. It's ridiculous. But at the same time, that book sold four and a half million copies. Then they revised it, 89 Reasons for 1989. 91 reasons for 91, 93 for 93, 95 for 95. The 95 edition still sold 300,000 copies. 
It is unreal, the level of ongoing gullibility that just happens year after year after year. And we have some of the shortest memory span to think about this. We have had uh, avian flu. We've had swine flu. We've had mad cow disease. We've had Y2K. We've had the Mayan calendar. Uh, we've had, you know, the 88 reasons. We've had Harold Camping and the, uh, the rapture in 2011, May 21st. We've, we've survived all of that in about the last 15 or so years. And every single year, it's something new. I mean, it, you know, a year ago, it was what harbingers they're about to destroy us. We made it through the last election. I mean, we, we just have had... <laughs> wondered if you catch that. We, we just keep making it through stuff. And it's, it's, at some point, we're going to have to step back and go, is this really, do we want to live on the edge of our seat all the time afraid of what the new thing is? I mean, the new thing right now is that there's four blood moons. Ooh, four blood moons, we're all going to die. Well, I, it's just, there's always something new. And, and in a couple of years, there'll be a new something new. And at some point, we have to say, what are we supposed to focus on? According to Matthew 6, he says, to seek first the kingdom. That's our focus. Now, we should get this by now because we're, we're good, charismatic folk. We're focused on the kingdom. That's our focus. We get that. And there are whole branches of the body of Christ that never talk about the kingdom, never focus on the kingdom, never give it any attention, and it's because of their eschatology, and I'll explain that in a little bit here. When, when we talk about eschatology, there's such a, a uh, you know, I don't know how to understand it. It's so complex. It's so complicated. It really hasn't been in church history. It became complex and complicated because of some individuals who created some new schemes to understand the end times in the 1800s. Before that, for 1800 years, church history actually taught a very basic understandable point of view regarding the end times that most of the church believed and understood. And then it got really complicated about 160 years ago, and we've been trying to figure it out since then. So I want to present a few ideas here, but it's an important perspective. And so don't check out, don't leave your brain at the door today and I'm going to present you some different views and help you understand some of this because I believe it's really important how we see the end because it impacts how you live in the middle. Here's a statement, and for those watching online, this is going to be in the test. Heads up so you know. Your eschatology determines your soteriology. Now, there's a word you probably don't hear on a Sunday morning very often. You may have heard of eschatology. You may never have heard of soteriology. All it is is this word that's used theologically to say the study of salvation. That's soteriology. The confusing thing is that people think that they can take the eschatology kid and leave him in the corner. Like, just put him off in the corner. He can stay there. We can go over here and have church and have a good time. But you can't do that. Because actually, your eschatology is the foundation of everything you believe. It is the foundation of everything else you believe. Because everything that you build, you're going to build on top of your view of the future. If you have a view of the future that says, I'm going to 
I'm going to build my family. I'm going to build for grandkids. I'm going to be the righteous man from Proverbs 13 that leaves an inheritance for his children's children. If you're going to be that righteous person that actually does that, then you're going to have to start to think long-term. And it's really hard to leave an inheritance for your children's children if you don't believe that you'll have children's children. And it's, it's really been tripping us up for a long time. When that book came out in 1988, the 88 Reasons book, it was such an impacting book that, that TBN was airing regular commercials telling people to be ready for the rapture. It was going to happen that year. And the people were buying trampolines and jumping up and down on it to prepare for the rapture. Not kidding you. That was for real. Lots of people did that. People took different directions. Some didn't go to college and just, just started to get a bunch of people saved and became pastors. And that's good that they did, they did that. But they didn't go to college because, well, by the time I finish college, I'll probably get raptured. So why bother going to school? We have, we have, there's a whole generation of pastors in their mid to late 60s now that did not go to college because they got saved in the 80s, believing for a, any second rapture, and they've been believing for it for four decades. We're, we're at a point now that, that it's, it's time to back up and go, is this producing fruit that builds the kingdom generationally, are we thinking inheritance, are we thinking legacy, are we thinking long-term, or have we given over the world to the devil, and every time we see something negative, we go, ah, it's a sign of the times. The hard thing is, no matter what you see, you can interpret it through your filter, because if you see something positive, you can quote the verse that says, well, it says they'll declare peace, peace, and then sudden destruction. So if you see something positive, you can still find it negative. If you see something negative, you go, oh, it's a sign of the times. So either way, it can fit your scheme, even when you hear good news. Like when you hear the good news that there's, there's been huge studies done that right now, 2013 has had the least amount of war, starvation, famines, uh, death, the life... Uh, all those negative things, the least time in human recorded history, 2013. Major studies done by Harvard, MIT, done by uh, three different independent groups. And yet for us as Christians, it's so hard to hear that because we've heard the negative shoved on us for so long that we think it must be right. When everything is moving in the right direction right now, that's really hard to hear. You go back to verses like, we're supposed to go from glory to glory. Oh, I thought at some point we stop and go from glory to, like, destruction. No, it says glory to glory. So that means right now there's more glory on the church than there ever has been at any time before. That's really hard to hear for some people because they idolize the early church. They say the early church is the best church that ever existed. Nonsense. The early church was filled with people trying to figure out moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. They're dealing with can we eat this meat or not? Do we have to circumcise or not? Can women be in leadership or not? As the law says, Paul quoting the Corinthians. There's all these debates going on. There's Peter being a blatant racist and Paul has to rebuke him to his face. 
There's a mess in the early church. Yes, 3,000 people got saved in one day. Right now, that happens every 25 minutes. 3,000 people are saved every 25 minutes. I don't know if you've heard this statistic, but this is another one that I love this one. The, the Earth's birth rate, physically speaking, is 1.9%. The born-again birth rate, if we can put it that way, is about 8%. That means there are four times as many people being born again every day as are being born every day. If you, did, if you did a straight line projection, if that kept up at exact same pace, and they say straight line projections is, is a fool's game, but if you were to do that, by 2033, every person on planet Earth would be a believer. We need some more good news in our good news. And we've, we've lost track of the reality of, of what is happening right now. The kingdom advancing is, is not only at the moment, but it's been historic. When you think about it, when Jesus shows up, he's the only guy who gets it. And then he picks out 12 guys, and 11 of them get it. They start to understand the kingdom. They start moving this thing forward. Then he has about 70 that he sends out. On the day of Pentecost, he has 120. Then he has 3,000 added to that, then 5,000. And it talks about adding... And then about Acts chapter 7, chapter 8, it switches, and it stops using the word adding, and it says those brought to the church were multiplied daily. It moves from addition to multiplication in the early, early church. At that point, it's only one tiny little group of people on the entire planet that understand Jesus and the new covenant. Sometimes we forget that. Whereas at this point, there's 2.2 billion people on planet Earth that claim that Jesus is Lord. 2.2 billion people on planet Earth that claim that Jesus is Lord. That's one-third of humanity. Now, you can disagree over all kinds of things. You can say sprinkle people or dunk people or... You know, drink Welch's with your communion or drink the red or, you know, we can debate all kinds of stuff. But when it comes down to 2.2 billion that have bowed their knee and said Jesus is Lord, that's what puts us on the same family. That's what puts us on the same terms. You can argue over all kinds of dumb stuff, but that doesn't matter to him when it comes to have you bowed your knee to Jesus as Lord. That's one in three of planet Earth. No time in human history has it ever been what we're at right now. That's incredible. So we should have a lot more hope toward the future. Hmm. It's good for a Sunday morning, right? Another way that I put this, another phrase that I appreciate, I put this in a blog recently, is I believe everybody has an eschatology. Whether you want to talk about it or not, whether you've studied it or not, whether you're a Christian or not, you have an eschatology. Because everybody has a view toward the future. Now you can try and ignore it all you want. 
we can try not to talk about it. We can leave it alone. After today, you can go home and go, you know, I don't want to hear about eschatology again. But the reality is this. You have one. It may be completely misinformed. It may be uninformed. But you have one. Every atheist has an eschatology because they look at the world and they have a desire to move it in a certain direction. Every Muslim has a view of eschatology. They want to view the world this way and move it toward their view of the future. You following me? Every Buddhist has the same concept. Every Hindu, every person on planet Earth has a view for the future that they want to move things in that direction. So we all have one. The question is, is not whether you have an eschatology. It's what is it and what fruit does it? does it produce in your life? That's where it becomes important. What is the fruit that's being produced of this belief system? Is it producing healthy fruit? That's a hard one for us because so often if, if we think about it, we say, well, whether, whether it's right or wrong is, is seems to be the only grid for us. You know, well, is your view right? Is it wrong? Well, let's think, how do you determine that? One, the way we determine is what is the fruit that's produced? Is the fruit that your basement is filled with 55-gallon drums of wheat and gasoline? I have friends whose parents still have Y2K storage units in their basement full of wheat and granola and grain and all of that. And that's the fruit of some views toward the future. And at this point, the stuff is literally coming up on its expiration date. And what do you do with 55 gallons of wheat that you've never used? Start making a lot of bread, I guess. <laughs> and this is, this is the fruit of some of these points of view. This is the fruit that we end up with. We end up with, you know, and, and some of it, technically, how does it even make sense? If you're going to get raptured, why are you stocking up? I mean, do you deep in your heart you're afraid you'll miss it somehow? Or are you storing up for the neighbors? Or what, what are you doing? Like, why are you stocking up if you don't, if you believe you're going to get out of here, you and Kirk Cameron are gone. If that's going to happen, then, then why stock up? It doesn't make any sense. So if you're, you know, if you're believing toward that, then just advance the kingdom as far as you can with your life and go for it and build as if you're not going to get, you know, floating out of here. And if you do, you do. Right? Doesn't that at least make better sense? That'll at least produce better fruit in your life. Instead of you being a fruit, you'll have fruit. <laughs> okay, now... Let, let's just do a quick poll. I expect everyone to raise your hand. Do you believe that the kingdom is here? Do you believe that the kingdom is for today? Do you believe you're called to advance the kingdom? All right, I believe everyone who raised their hand is right. Thank you. It was not a trick question. I know I make you nervous sometimes. But that's the reality. And we understand this. We should understand this. Bill Johnson's been harping on it for 20 years kingdom is here bring it to earth bring it down let's do this he's right and we need to hear it we need to get it and we need to move out of just focusing on just growing the membership of our church to we want to advance the kingdom which includes much more than that 
Now, with that kind of thinking, that is something that for us, it's, it's uniquely charismatic. I don't know if you've realized that, but that's a very charismatic point of view to advance the kingdom. The reason is because there's a difference in the other parts of the body of Christ that don't believe the kingdom is here now. They believe the kingdom will come after the rapture. You know, that's one of the main reasons that there are whole parts of the body of Christ that don't believe in the supernatural for today. Because they don't believe we're in the kingdom. See, you believe in the supernatural because you believe you're in the kingdom. And if you believe that the kingdom only comes after the rapture, then you're just in the church age. Anyone ever heard that phrase? You're in the church age. No, you're not. That is nonsense that was made up in the 1800s. There's no such thing as a church age. It's total nonsense. You will not find that in Scripture. It is a concept that was put over the Scripture in the mid-1800s. What we're actually in is we're in the kingdom. What we've been learning, and it's been confused because back in the 900s, 1100s, somewhere in there about 900 to 1100 A.D., we had the nine crusades that took place, and the church was saying, here's how you're going to advance the kingdom. Go to Jerusalem and kill some Muslims and take back the Holy Land. Okay, that's not how you advance the kingdom. Sorry, that's just totally wrong. Our understanding of advancing the kingdom at this point in human history is far better than it has been at sometimes in the past. Sometimes in the past we've got it really, really wrong. Advancing the kingdom early on was we're going to come to North America and we're going to take over North America, take it back from all the savages and build the kingdom of God on earth here and now. Also a problem. That, that whole manifest destiny concept was a problem. We've had some really messed up understandings of advancing the kingdom. When we think advancing the kingdom, you and I, when we think advancing the kingdom nowadays, we think praying for the sick raising the dead, casting out demons, getting people's marriages restored, getting children and parents restored, getting uh, businesses uh, prosperous in our city and, and serving the Lord through our businesses. There's so much more that we've encompassed that does not include going on the war path, which is great. Right? A couple of you said yes. All right, good. Roll Tide? Maybe we should go back there. We'll start over. Um, <laughs> so we have, we have these different perspectives, and how we understand the kingdom is really important. I believe that the kingdom is the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. So if Jesus is king, there shouldn't be any sickness in his presence. If Jesus is king, there shouldn't be any demons in his presence. There's things like that that just become very obvious, that it's not about going on the warpath. It's about his presence coming in and enforcing his rulership, which brings healing and health and restored marriages, restored families, restored lives, uh, restored businesses, restored economies. It's, it's a restoration. Everything he does in his kingdom brings that kind of health. It's wonderful. So the kingdom is a wonderful thing, and it, it should advance very easily when we don't get in the way by messing it up with our own distorted ideas of the kingdom. One of the questions I get all the time, people ask me this wherever I travel, they say, why is it that in Africa, in China, in India, in, in South America, why in these other countries do they have revival? 
Now, I use air quotes because I don't believe in revival. I believe in normal Christianity. I believe that normal Christianity is just filled with the supernatural. It's filled with people flocking to Jesus. That's normal stuff. It's not that they did something to get God to show up. But what we're warned against the most in the New Testament is false teaching, false teachers, false doctrines, demons of do- doctrines of demons. We're warned against false teaching. I believe the thing that holds back the Western world, whether it's Europe or whether it's North America, the thing that holds us back is false teaching. I don't just say that because I'm a teacher. I say that, I could say that as a revivalist because it's the same issue. It's not just getting enough faith. What's happening is that we're drinking the poison of false teaching that keeps us from having the presence and the move of God the way that we need to and the way that we actually desire to. One of the poisons that we've drank is that we're not in the kingdom. And if you grew up in any of that kind of church or some of your family might still be caught in that thinking, that poison gets you to think we're not in the kingdom. If we're not in the kingdom, we shouldn't expect the supernatural. If you're in the kingdom and you're an ambassador from heaven to earth, you're an ambassador from heaven to earth, you are a citizen of heaven, you're seated in heavenly places, you should expect sickness to bow when you lay your hands on people. It's just, it should be the most obvious normal thing. But when you're not thinking kingdom and you're thinking, you know, we're just God's plan B, we're stuck here in the church age, let's grow our church and get a few more people to accept Jesus and come and tithe and be a part of our church, that type of thinking only goes so far and you don't expect the supernatural. And once in a while... God might break into your church, and you don't really know what to do with them. You know, worship hits a certain point. you got the best Michael W. Smith song going, everything's rocking, and you're like, wow, there's something really heavy, but we don't know what to do with it. So let's move on with the sermon like normal. That happens all over America all the time, and it's unfortunate because we haven't learned how to actually steward it because we don't understand even what we're supposed to steward. Because well, what, what is that? It's the kingdom. It's his reign and rulership. It's entering an atmosphere. You're beginning to feel it because you don't know your job as an ambassador. You don't even know what to do. And as an ambassador, you, we are an ambassador of a kingdom that we should be in connection with. It's hard to be an ambassador who you've never visited the country you're an ambassador from. If people ask me all the time, oh, you know, how often have you gone to heaven or how often has, has God ever done that with you? And it's like, wait a minute, let's stop and think about this. You're a citizen of heaven. Why can't you visit your own country? If it's your father's house, why doesn't he want to let you in? We got some messed up thinking to think that there's anything holding us back from just visiting heaven in your heart. You're seated already there, so what's the disconnect about? It's because of lies we've been taught. We think there are super-Christians, and then there's just the rest of us. And maybe the super-Christian can go on a regular basis, but I don't know about me. That's crazy identity stuff, and it's lies that we've bought into. And Jesus says in John 3, he says, Nobody has gone into heaven except the Son of Man who's come down from heaven, and he's talking about himself, who is here but is also in heaven. 
So Jesus says to them, I came from heaven. I'm standing in front of you, but I'm also in heaven right now. What? He just knew. He was connected in his heart. He was there. He could close his eyes, and he's sitting at the, at the right hand as well. He's got both going on. You are an interdimensional being. You should be connected to both all the time. You're already seated. That's not just a theological statement. It's a reality that you can be connected to. So that's just a favorite soapbox right there anyway. So what's this whole kingdom thing? What's the value? How do we know when it showed up? For us, Daniel chapter 2 should be incredibly important. Now, it's a long chapter. I won't read through the whole thing right now, but it's probably familiar to many of us. In the dream, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. He doesn't remember the dream. He gets all his magicians and says, here's what we're going to do. You're going to tell me the dream that I had that I don't remember, and then you're going to interpret it for me. That's pretty rough. That's like, there's John Paul Jackson. That's like a whole nother level. Like, that's like, I'm not even telling you the dream so you can interpret it. That's just straight mean. And he says, and then if you don't get it right, you're all going to die. <sighs> so Daniel, he fasts, he prays. The Lord gives him both the dream and the interpretation. He gets the dream and the interpretation. And in the dream, it's a statue that's made up of five parts. There's a head of gold. There's a chest and arms made of silver. There's a waist and stomach and thighs that are made of bronze. There are legs that are made of iron and then toes and feet that are made of iron and clay. Okay, you remember this dream at all? Anybody? Okay. So interestingly, if you keep reading the story in the very next chapter, so often we just read one chapter a day or one chapter at a time. But if you read it straight through in the next chapter, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that are supposed to bow down to a giant statue and worship it or go into the furnace. It's probably the same statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in the dream. So the revelation became an idol. Just a side note, that does happen sometimes. Your revelation from God can turn into an idol. So he has this revelation, and God is telling him about the kingdoms that are coming. Daniel interprets it. He says, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar is the king over Babylon. He says, after you, another kingdom will rise, and that kingdom will be the kingdom of silver. And that's the Medes and the Persians. They came in after Babylon, the Medes and the Persians. After them, a kingdom of bronze, which was the Greek empire, came in next. I'm going through this rather quickly, but you can go to Daniel chapter 2 and you can take a look later and you'll see the same thing. And everything I've said so far about this, this statue is agreed on by everybody across the board. There's no debate about it until you get to the end of the statue. The head is Babylon. The silver is Medes and Persians. The, the stomach and thighs area is the bronze, and that's the Greeks. The legs of iron is the Roman Empire. And then you get down to these ten toes. Now, I don't know if you remember watching, you know, back in the day, some of the movies, there was the Thief in the Night series. You can go on YouTube and watch all four of those for free on, on YouTube. And those are like the 70s version of Left Behind. Uh, then you have Left Behind in the 90s, of course, and the 2000s. And, and then you have... Uh, Somewhere in there, there was this one that wasn't as well-known, but called the Omega Code. You guys remember the Omega Code? Yeah, I know. You all went and saw it full price, too? No. <laughs> so anyway, 
that movie really brings out this concept of what has been called the revived Roman Empire, if you've ever heard that term. The concept is that this statue, what people agree on is that you have the head, which is Babylon, then you have Medo-Persian, then you have the Greek, then you have the Roman. But what some versions of eschatology have done is they've cut the feet off the statue. Instead of having these kingdoms one right after another, they cut the feet off and they throw the feet into the future and say the feet haven't happened yet. That's where we get this ten-nation alliance that was supposedly going to be the UN or it was going to be the League of Nations or it was going to be the European Union and it was going to be ten nations that are going to rule the world and the Antichrist will rule through those ten nations. Where do we get the ten-nation thing? It's not in Revelation. It's they cut the ten toes off the statue and said it hasn't happened yet. Part of the problem, though, is that what Daniel chapter 2 is actually showing us is the time of the arrival of the kingdom of God on the earth. That's the point of Daniel chapter 2. Because there's one other character. There's the statue, but then there's a rock. It talks about a rock that was cut out of the mountain without human hands and that the rock comes and it lands on those toes. It lands on the feet and it smashes them to pieces. And then the rock begins to grow until it becomes a mountain. And then the mountain fills the whole earth. And that the rock is the kingdom and it shall grow without end. So most of the time that we've heard this, it's been through this filter of ten-nation league that's going to take over the world, that this is going to happen in the future. But the prophecy is actually telling us about the arrival of the kingdom. The, the prophecy is really about the rock. Now, who's the rock? Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> You got it right. You were right. So you can Google it. Um, anyway. <laughs> so here's the thing, though. What's with this rock? Yes, it's Jesus. And the concept is this. He's called the cornerstone that the builders rejected. He's also called the stumbling stone in Zion. He's called the rock that followed them in the wilderness. So Jesus has this metaphor of rock thing all around him. And the concept is this. It says in Daniel 2 that he's a rock cut out of the mountain without human hands. What, what's that about? The concept there, in, in later in theology, about 300 A.D., a bunch of theologians get together, the early church fathers, and they say, Jesus is both fully man and fully God. It's a theological concept called the hypostatic union. Don't worry, that won't be on the test. The hypostatic union is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Daniel, 700 years earlier, gets a picture from God saying the same thing, that Jesus is a rock, which is an earthly side of him, that's cut out of the, hand, out of the mountain by divine intervention, that Jesus is both divine and human. That's the picture God uses for Jesus. What's with the ten toes? When Caesar Augustus came into power, the first Caesar of Rome, it was uh, 27 B.C. When he came into power, he 
divided the Roman Empire, which had gotten so large, into ten provinces. He said then over every province there would be a king. Remember in, in Revelation it talks about the king of kings? That was a Roman term because the Caesar was over all of his ten provinces, which each had a king. So he was the king over kings. So Jesus is also the king over kings. He never said he's the king of slaves and orphans. He's the king of kings. Says a lot about you, says a lot about him. So you're kings and he's king of kings. In the same way, Caesar Augustus divides up the Roman Empire into ten toes, if you will, ten different provinces, puts a king over each one, and Caesar Augustus is king from 27 B.C. until 14 A.D. What happened in that time span? A little louder, anyone? Jesus is born. That's right. It was the first Christmas when Santa Claus came and died for your presents. <laughs> Just think about it. Don't, don't think about it. So we have, we have in, in, the, in that time span, when he breaks it up into ten toes, that's when the rock lands. That's when Jesus arrives. That's when he arrives in the manger. The rock is now here. The kingdom comes with the king. You can't separate the two. The king arrives in the manger, and the wise men come to bring him gifts. He's already the king of the universe. It's not after he dies, now he's the king. He ascends to the heavenly throne at that point, but he's king from day one that he gets here. He is the king of this world. So the king arrives in the manger. He's the rock that lands during the period of the ten toes, and he lands and he crushes the ten toes, and his kingdom begins to grow. Now that's great news for us. Part of the problem that gets confused is once you cut the toes off, you have to throw them out into the future and say the ten toes thing hasn't happened. We'll have to have a revived Roman Empire someday in the future for this to be fulfilled. For that to happen, it also means the rock hasn't arrived yet, and the kingdom's not here, and it's not growing, and it's not advancing. Just have a nice church. And that's most of Western American and European Christianity. Just have a nice church because we don't have the kingdom. Because the toes hasn't happened, the rock hasn't landed, it's not growing. Another thing that gets confused is the idea that the kingdom will come all at once. As if the kingdom of God will drop out of the sky like a skyscraper, the kingdom is here. And the concept there is that the rapture will happen and then he'll drop the kingdom here. Well, the problem with that is it doesn't fit the picture of a stone growing into a mountain and then filling the whole earth. That's progressive. The kingdom growing is actually a progression. The picture Jesus uses for it in Matthew chapter 13, 31 through 33, he says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed, but it grows into a bush, then it turns into a tree, then it becomes the largest tree, and all the birds can come and rest in its branches. He says, let me give you another picture. It's like 
a, a lump of, of leaven, that's a lump of yeast that's worked into 60 pounds of dough, and it works its way through the whole batch of dough. The kingdom of God is progressive. It's not all at once. With a progressive understanding, we can see he started something back in the first century that's been growing ever since. The growing concept actually gives you something to do. You're not just waiting for the rapture. You can be involved in growing the kingdom. You can be involved in advancing the kingdom. You can think generationally. You can think legacy. You can think inheritance. You can be the righteous man that thinks for his children's children. Otherwise, you're just waiting for this thing to end, for the kingdom to come, finally. Actually, when we look at the Lord's Prayer, he says that the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The, the force of the words in the Greek, it's an imperative. He's saying, kingdom of God, come. Will of God, be done. It's not this, ah, may it come, may it be done. It's a forceful tone that's used in the Greek saying enforce the kingdom bring it into the earth cause it to come be involved in the growth you have a job it's good because many of us have been unemployed Christianity and just kind of like maybe once in a while we'll get like a friend or a family member saved but that's That's about the only thing that we understand if you don't think kingdom. The kingdom is so much more, though. It's a much, much larger focus. You guys doing all right so far? Okay. Now, that's really the main difference. Seeking first the kingdom, understanding the kingdom, are we pursuing it, are we advancing it, or are we just living in the church age waiting someday to get raptured and then the kingdom can come? Those are two very, very different points of view. I'm going to lay something out for you you may have never heard and you may never hear it again, but this is the four major views of the end times. Now, most of us, when we think different views of the end times, we think pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, post-trib rapture. The question in our mind is, when do we get raptured? Those are not different views of the end times. That actually all falls under one system. You going to take some notes with me and put something in your phone or your iPad or whatever you got with you? And write these words down. The first one is futurism. Futurism. Futurism is the Western worldview. It is the, the kind that we see on every televangelist on TV, every cheesy movie that we make, every uh, you know, paperback novel that we write. It is the dominant view in the Western world. Futurism is the concept that all the bad stuff in Scripture is going to happen in our future. Whether it's the whole book of Revelation, Matthew 24, the book of Daniel, all that stuff will happen in the future. It is the apocalypse, essentially. That's the futurist view. Inside the futurist view, there are variations of views. So most of the time when you hear people debate, they're debating all inside just one of the systems. One system is futurism. 
inside of futurism, there's the idea that you get raptured, and then Nikolai Carpathia takes over the world for seven years, battles Kirk Cameron and his, his crew, and you have that, that pre-trip. That's the most dominant view, the pre-trip view. That, if, you, if you start thinking about oh, who's pre-trip, pre-trip is the Jack Van Impies, the Perry Stones, the, the John Hagees. You can go down the list. All the famous TV folk are pre-trip. It's very popular because we don't get to be here for the bad stuff. <sighs> Yay. So that's the most popular, the most well-known, the most uh, dominant in our culture. The second view, and not too many people are known for this, but it's the mid-trip view. It means that of the seven years of hell on earth that are coming supposedly in the future, you get to be here for half of it. The concept there is that you get to be here for half of it because the second half is about the wrath of God, and the bride of Christ wouldn't have to be here for the wrath because God's not that angry at her. But you do get to suffer the first half, of the seven years of hell on earth. So you have those, that view is called the mid-trib view. Then the last is the post-trib view. Now the post-trib is interesting because the concept there is that Christians will live through hell on earth, but it will be sort of like the exodus with Moses, where Egypt over here is getting all the plagues poured on their head, and Israel is just chilling and waiting and hanging out. So Israel gets to just hang out while seven years of how on earth is taking place. That's the concept of the post-trib view. That's where you hear people talk about cities of refuge or Goshen cities, where we need to stock up food and supplies and ammo and toilet paper because we're going to be here for seven years of the system shutting down and we're going to be under that, whereas over here the world is going to be being punished by God for seven years. That's the post-trip view. But all three of those views all believe in futurism, that all the bad stuff is coming in the future, that it's all hanging over our head right now. So that's really not three different, that's not three different structures. It's three subsets of views. Got it? Okay, moving on. There are three other big views. One is called historicism. Historicism. Historicism is actually what most of the church fathers in the Reformation, John Calvin, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, all of that time period from the 1500s to the 1700s, they believed something called historicism. The concept there was that they believed Revelation 1 was the beginning of church history, that the book of Acts and Revelation 1 both started together, and that church history has been walked out for the last 2,000 years, so we might be currently living in Revelation 14 and a half. It's a whole different view that says some of the bad stuff's happened, some of the bad stuff is going to happen, and some of the bad stuff's happening right now. It's actually a lot more positive than futurism because at least some of it has already happened. Whew, good. We missed some of it. And you can still go, okay, we might be getting really close to the end. It's views like this that said, okay, if this is how it is, that the book of Revelation is stretched out over 2,000 years. 
Futurism says the whole book will happen in our future. Historicism says it's stretched out over 2,000 years. That's the view that my parents gravitated towards when they were in Bible school. They arrived at, well, it'll all pan out in the end, but they heard historicism and said, that makes more sense. At least some of the bad stuff's happened. We'll go with that one. So my parents were historicists growing up, and the thing about historicists that's kind of interesting is that they always are trying to figure out where in Revelation are we right now. So way back, they were saying Napoleon Bonaparte is the beast. So we're in Revelation 13 right now, and they were believing that they were living in it. And every new person, okay, now Hitler's the beast, and now Stalin's the beast, and every new person can be that, and you can figure it out, but the historic view always has to be shifting to adjust to the newspaper headlines. Because, okay, now this is what fits, and now this is what fits. So historicist view is not very popular nowadays. It might be with some historic uh, views, the Seventh-day Adventists, they, are, they believe historicism. Um, some of the older denominations believe historicism. But for the most part, historicism is not a popular nowadays belief system. The third one is called idealism or the spiritual view. Idealism or the spiritual view. The concept of idealism is that the book of Revelation is basically Lord of the Rings. It's a spiritual view. The whole thing's an allegory. It's not about events that are actually going to take place. It's just about a beast and a dragon versus the lamb, which is Jesus. And we're just in a big fight, and the whole thing is just a spiritual picture. And we're not to try to figure it out as a literal prophecy that is going to take place. That is the idealist or the spiritual view. It was really popular about 100 years ago uh, when they started to believe that, that – uh, the supernatural was not happening nowadays, and they started to come up with what was called the liberal or the social gospel. That concept that the supernatural is not for today, the book of Revelation is not a real prophecy, it's just an allegory. It's just spiritual pictures that mean something to us. The problem with that view is that John says, he records in Revelation, things that will soon come to pass not a picture of things that will be happening for the next 2,000 years and the rest of church history. So it has a real faulty foundation that's a problem because it's an actual prophecy in the book of Revelation. So those are the three main views. There's a fourth. The fourth is called preterism. Preterism is this Latin word that just means having already happened. Preterism is the opposite of futurism. Futurism says everything's going to happen in the future. Preterism says this has happened in the first century. That the book of Revelation was actually about the destruction of Jerusalem at 70 AD, and it was about the most apocalyptic, horrible time in Israel's history recorded in human history, which is the transition from the old covenant world being destroyed into the new covenant world being established. That's preterism. It's a very, it, it really focuses on the shift from the old covenant into the new covenant. Now, with these different views, it's important that we understand that there are more options because most of us have never even heard that there are options. 
If you're like most American individuals, you've only heard three options inside of one system called futurism. And without even knowing the others were available, you're stuck. You're saying, okay, now the only debate is when do we get raptured out of the coming nightmare? And to even hear the other views, it, it boggles the mind to think, wait, maybe there isn't a coming nightmare right around the corner? Are you telling me it's possible that this was talking about something in the past? Hmm. Hmm. I really am just trying to lay a foundation and get us thinking today. But let's consider this. If you hold to any of the futurist views, you cannot operate and live in the kingdom. You would be hypocritical to try to operate in the kingdom because every futurist view annihilates the kingdom being here right now. Because the kingdom has not arrived, we're waiting for ten toes, we're waiting for a rock to land. If you are going to believe one of the three futurist views, do not believe in the supernatural for today. You're completely inconsistent to have both together. Although we do it all the time, though, it's, it's not consistent. It's a total contradiction to believe that you can operate in the supernatural and not be in the kingdom. They don't go together. You're a kingdom ambassador bringing heaven into the earth. That means the kingdom landed at some time in the past and the kingdom is advancing. Otherwise, we're just waiting for toes in the future. So that's an important point. Another thought is that we don't understand a lot of what was written in the first century on the other side of the planet in a culture we don't fully understand with an Old Testament that most of us haven't really read or studied very much as the backdrop for the understanding of the New Testament. That causes us a lot of problems and a lot of confusion. Let me give you one example. You know how sometimes you might get in a debate with someone who's trying to reinstitute like the food laws, like you can't have bacon, and you're like, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> you know, but there are Christians who are like trying to reinstitute stuff. You have to have a Sabbath. You have to have this legalism and this legalism. And there's whole movements around this kind of legalism. And the thought that they use is they always go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he says, not one jot or tittle will pass away until, unless, until the, the heavens and the earth pass away. And they, they use that to say the law is still here more than you realize. But then you push them on it and you say, okay, then what about sacrificing animals? What about, you know, you start to go through the other ones that they say, well, that's not for today. There's a huge problem with this. Because if you stop and you think about what Jesus really just said, he said not one jot, not one tittle. That's basically saying not one cross T or dotted I. Not one little detail, not one dot, not one comma is going to pass away until heaven and earth passes away. So think about that with me for a minute, because the truth is this. Either heaven and earth has passed away, or you're still fully under the law. 
There's no way around it. You can spend the next three hours thinking about it. There's no way around it. Either heaven and earth passed away or every jot and tittle still apply until heaven and earth pass away. So the question, did heaven and earth pass away? And for our brain, we only think in one, one structure that says literalism. You have to mean literally. Except what Jewish historians tell us is that in the first century, they believed that the temple was heaven and earth. That heaven and earth was represented in the temple. When you walked into the Holy of Holies, you walked into a room that was sewn, all the walls were sewn with images of cherubim on them. And you have the ark with the two cherubs on top of it. You have this whole room that represents heaven. Then you walk out to a room that has a candlestick over here, and it has bread over here, and it has a dirt floor, and it represents earth. Then you walk out one more to the outer court. You have this bronze laver, which represents the sea. Notice that in the, in the book of Revelation, it says that in the new heaven, new earth, there is no sea. There is no, uh, this has passed away. The temple has been destroyed. And now Jesus dwells among his people. Something really big has shifted here. The concept of the law is still here hanging over us. We know that that's a problem. We know, oh no, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Well, compared to what? Compared to not freedom. So if the spirit of the Lord is here, and we are the temple, our body's the temple now, it's not a physical temple sitting in Jerusalem, if the jot and tittles have passed away, then heaven and earth must have passed away. What does that mean? Jesus is not talking about the destruction of the planet in Matthew chapter 5. He's talking about the destruction of the temple, which took place 40 years later. That's what he's saying in Matthew chapter 5. Hmm. That's a big hmm. See, and I'm going to get into this some more in a little while. We're, we're going to come back tonight at 6 o'clock, and we'll, we'll pick up where I'm going to leave us off. But... What I think we've done is we've seen things written in the New Testament, and we think it's about the end of planet Earth. And I believe that what we really see when we study it, it was the end of of planet Moses. It was the end, the total annihilation and destruction of the old covenant system which to them in that time period was one of the most traumatic times in their entire history. It was worse than the destruction of Babylon and Assyria under Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It was worse than that because it was never going to be reinstituted. See, throughout Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they're like, look, you're going to be destroyed, but God will bring you back. In the New Testament, the switch is God is going to destroy it, He's never going to reinstitute the old covenant, and he's moving you into a new covenant. So rather than having an end of planet Earth theology, mine is the end of planet old covenant theology. 
and it makes all the difference in the world. Because now, instead of living in fear of the future, I meet, I meet young women all the time that say, you know, I just, I'm concerned about having a child because it says, woe to those who are nursing in those days. You know, pray that you're, you're not uh, uh, nursing on the, and that it's not the Sabbath and it's not the winter and all of those things. And there's, there's all kinds of fear over anything generational because this is coming right down the road any moment. You know, they may have gotten Y2K wrong, but maybe it's the Mayan calendar. Maybe it's the blood moons. Maybe it's the harbingers. Maybe it's the uh, swine flu, avian flu, you know, fill in the blank. Maybe it's something. And people who live on the edge of their seat in that nervous fear of the future, rather than that stuff was written for us to know the old covenant world was being destroyed and passed away. So you can step fully into the kingdom into a new covenant with the king and be an ambassador and advance the kingdom of God on the earth. There will come a day when heaven and earth are finally joined. There will come a day when Jesus does return. Those things are yes and absolutely in the future. But are we waiting for a bunch of horrific stuff to happen in the future? I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I believe that's what modern Christianity teaches. And there's a big gap between those two. So, I think that's where I'll leave us for right now. And for our students, uh, we'll be doing the next two weeks will be Gary DeMar. Gary DeMar will be here. I'll tell you a little bit about him. He'll be here tomorrow evening. Gary DeMar is one of my heroes. I've read everything that he's written. I've read his blogs, listened to his podcasts for years. And he is... Um, just an absolute brilliant, brilliant mind who's going to come and share with the SSMA students and anyone else. If you want to, you can just go on right start by uh, talking about the kingdom. Now, we hear this term all the time. It's something, I mean, you guys are in Kingdom Life Institute, so you probably hear it more than a lot of other places. But there's a lot of confusion that surrounds this term, this whole concept of kingdom. Uh, as I said yesterday, some believe that it only comes at the end of time when Jesus comes back and sets up like a millennial reign, that that's the kingdom. And, and that we're currently in what some call the church age or the age of grace. Uh, there's others who do believe we're in the kingdom, but they divide things out as uh, the kingdom is now, but it's also not yet. Have, you, have any of you heard that phrase before, the kingdom now and not yet? That's also uh, another, another stance. Um, I believe that we're in the kingdom that's growing. That is, that is now, but it is also not yet. Not yet in the sense that God is holding back anything, but in the sense that we still have more ground to take. That it's, everything is available, available to us as kingdom now. We just haven't acquired it all. And because we haven't grabbed a hold of it all, that's the only reason that there's some that's not yet. 
It's not that it's being restricted from, whereas there are some who do believe that not yet means that God is actually holding back certain things from us for only for the future. And I, I don't believe that that's, that's the truth of the word. So let's go to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to take a look at the kingdom together. Daniel chapter 2. We're going to read this passage. It's a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has had in Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel is interpreting the dream. Actually, the king has asked for an interpretation. He said, I'm not even going to tell you what the dream was. You have to tell me what my dream was and then give me the interpretation. Who wants that dream interpretation class, right? Like, man, that's, that's rough. Okay, I'm not going to tell you my dream. And I need an interpretation. Uh, <laughs> and if you get it wrong, I'll kill you. Oh, <laughs> oh boy, that's a rough one. So that's the dream interpretation that's going on in Daniel chapter 2. And, and it's interesting because he has the king Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he's had this dream of a giant statue. When you read on to the next couple chapters, you find the story of uh, Daniel's three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, those, throw, those three guys are the ones that are thrown in the furnace because they won't bow down and worship a giant statue. And think about this. Nebuchadnezzar's had a giant statue dream, and in the dream, he's the pure gold head. And the next chapter, he creates a giant statue of himself and says, worship and bow down and worship me. These are actually connected. There's these concepts. This, this is not a separate thing. It's Nebuchadnezzar has the dream. He gets the interpretation in this chapter. In the next chapter, he creates a giant statue and tells everybody in the nation to bow down and worship it. It's, it all kind of flows in together. That's when he, then in the next, he becomes insane because of his arrogance. He gets sent out into the field to live like a beast. And then he comes back to his right mind and worships God. So he's, Nebuchadnezzar is an interesting story when you don't break up Daniel into chapters, but when you actually read it right through, this is the same guy. It's an interesting story. I, I would encourage you to read it without breaking it into chapters. Actually see what was going on flowing one into the next. So here's the context. We're going to pick up in verse 31. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, and we're going to read the actual vision and interpretation, and then I want to show you something, okay? Your majesty looked, and there before you, before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the rock, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind blew them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all of mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. 
After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. As iron and breaks, as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay, partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly of iron and partly of clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with the clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is trustworthy, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Okay, long passage, but here's what's going on. He's had the dream. He sees the statue. The statue is made up of five different pieces, the head of gold, the arms and chest of silver, the midsection and the thigh of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay, all right? And, and people talk about especially the toes, the ten toes of the statue being made of iron and clay and brittle and not united. Then when you get to the place where you have the toes, when you get down to that part, you have this rock that's cut out of a mountain but not cut by human hands, and it comes and it's hurtled into the earth. It smashes the feet of this statue, and then it begins to grow. And it becomes a kingdom that's set up that's without end and will not be given to another. And it grows until it's a giant mountain that fills the whole earth. Okay, so here's the, the picture of what we have going on. So he tells them very specifically that you are the head of pure gold, that Babylon, that King Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going to draw a little stick figure here. You can put it on your, on your paper there. And we're going to give them some little feet too. All right. What we have, the head, is Babylon. Okay, so the head is the pure gold, and that's Babylon. Now, you have in here the arms, this section is the kingdom that comes after you. Now, after Babylon, Babylon was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. So you have the Medo-Persian kingdom, which came in after Babylon. And that's the silver, that's the arms and the belly. That's the midsection. Now from here to the thighs, you have the bronze. So we have silver and bronze. Anybody know what came after the Medo-Persian kingdom? Before the Romans, the Greeks. The Greeks are the next one, and that is the bronze. And the iron legs is the Romans. So we're going to take our, our legs here, and this is Roman, and that's 
iron. Okay, now, what you have here is a standard understanding. This is not something that's disagreed on. This is understood by all different backgrounds, all different denominations and belief systems. What happens, though, is when you get down to these ten toes, when you get down to the feet of iron and clay, there becomes a disagreement with some parts of the body of Christ. Now, the typical part of the body that disagrees is usually the part that doesn't believe in the supernatural. They typically say, well, the kingdom isn't here right now. We're in the church. The understanding, and it's called dispensationalism, the understanding of what happened is that they say that Jesus came, he offered the kingdom to the Jews, and they rejected him. And because they rejected him, Jesus took the kingdom back, and that he has not established the kingdom. Jesus took the kingdom back, and he set up the church in the earth. And then the church is walking out God's will until we get raptured out of here. When we get raptured out, then God sets up his kingdom in the earth. There's a few issues with that. The Apostle Paul spends a majority of his ministry preaching the kingdom, not preaching the church. And that's after Jesus. He wasn't focused on the fact that, well, there's no kingdom right now. No, his whole ministry was focused on building and bringing the kingdom of our Jesus, our Lord, into this earth. The focus of the New Testament is not the church. The other thing, too, is that people have misunderstood the fact that the kingdom goes with the king. If Jesus is king, he has a kingdom. To say the kingdom doesn't exist yet or it isn't now is to say that Jesus isn't the king yet. Well, he is the king. He's enthroned on the seat of David is what it says in Acts chapter 2. He's already enthroned as king in the universe. As soon as he was resurrected, he took his seat of glory. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. So this, uh, this concept, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is now, that we have to understand what are these ten toes? What is the feet that the rock crashed into? Because a lot of people are throwing that way off in the future. Now let me give you an understanding. So as we go through, we have gold, silver, bronze, iron, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, the Roman. There was a time period here where Caesar Augustus, the reason that we have uh, the month August, he built a calendar, and his, his time period of his reign was from 27 B.C., through 14 A.D. Okay. What important event happened during the reign of Caesar Augustus? Jesus what? Nope. Look at the calendar. His birth. His birth. Jesus' birth. Now, our calendar's a little bit off. Because our calendar, we think he was born in zero. He was technically born in 3 B.C. It's not that he was time traveling. He wasn't born before he was born. But he was born in 3 B.C. Our calendars are just slightly off. But in 3 B.C., Jesus is born. Now, here's the intriguing part here. Rome had gotten so large before the reign of Caesar Augustus began in 27 B.C. It had become so large 
that they literally were having trouble keeping their provinces in order. And so to fix this, they took the whole uh, uh, empire of Rome and they broke it into ten provinces. They broke it into ten provinces. Rome became the divided Roman Empire. The whole phrase where people say king of kings, like in, in Revelation, Jesus is called the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The emperors were called the king of kings. The reason being, each of the ten provinces had its own king. So then the emperor was the king of kings. Did you follow that? So if you have ten kings ruling over ten provinces, the one who rules over the ten kings is the king over the kings. He's the lord over the lords. So when they're writing Revelation, he's saying, in the same way that you understand that the Roman Empire emperor is the king over kings, Jesus is the king over all kings. It's, it's basically taking the understanding, the language of the Roman Empire, and, and putting it right in their face, saying Jesus is way more. He's the king over all kings. As well as the fact, you each are made kings in the kingdom. You're kings, you're priests, you're a royal people. So he's the king over kings. He's not the king over a bunch of slaves and servants. He's not the king over orphans. He's the king over kings. So he's the king of kings. The shift in understanding when we get our identity straight, that he's the king of kings. That's us. So you have here ten toes under this time period you have ten provinces which are the ten toes the ten toes of Rome at this point it was the divided Roman kingdom there was such uh, they would kept constantly having to squelch these little rebellions that would break out at places and they'd send an army and they'd destroy a city and then another one would pop up and and there were people at that time you see the word zealot throughout the New Testament the zealots were actually small rebel sect they're they're a group of people that would rise up and rebel so some of the uh some of the, even some of the disciples were called zealots because they had been part of some of those rebel groups so there during this time you have these ten toes this iron and clay mixture it's kind of broken up a bit and it's at that time that you have a rock cut without hands that is coming for these feet now, the rock cut without hands, here's the significant piece of cut without hands. Now, rock is just an element of the earth. It's very natural. It's very earthly. It's very uh, just, just a part of the natural realm. So the earth is representing the natural side of Jesus. But it's a stone cut without hands, also showing his divine nature as well. It's representing two sides, both the natural and the divine, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So it's, it's drawing a parallel for you to understand that this rock has been cut out of the mountain without hands. Now, the mountain is a reference to Mount Zion. It's always a reference to God's spiritual kingdom. It's a reference in the Old Testament to his, his people, Israel, 
And in the New Testament, it's used like in Hebrews 12, it talks about how we've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, there was a natural Jerusalem. In the New Testament, there's a heavenly Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, there was a Mount Zion. In the New Testament, Mount Zion represents God's kingdom and God's heavens. So there's, there's a natural and then a spiritual. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about first the natural, then the spiritual. That God did things in the Old Testament as a natural to show us the spiritual side. Now, the other thing, and I, I want to back up for a moment because I was saying something earlier that I didn't finish. The concept of how we're in the, in the church, not in the kingdom right now, one of the things that comes out of this is a misunderstanding of what the church is. When people say replacement theology, and they say that the church has replaced Israel, now a lot of people really react to that. They say that's a heresy, it's, it's anti-Semitic, they, they have all these labels for it. The reality is there's no sense to uh, replacement theology, because there, there is no replacement it's a continuation. When you look in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, there's this word, ecclesia, and it has to do with the remnant of called out ones. You remember under uh, King uh, Ahab, Elijah is running and he's hiding in the cave by himself and he's, he's complaining to the Lord, I'm the only one who hasn't bowed my knee to Baal, blah, blah, blah. He thinks he's the only guy left who's worshiping the Lord. And the Lord says to him, I have 7,000 others who've not bowed their knee. You remember that, right? Okay. Those 7,000 others were a remnant. They were a part of what's called the remnant or the ecclesia. In the Old Testament, there's always a remnant. Ecclesia means called out ones. So in Israel, in the Old Testament, you'd have, say, 90% of them that go off and they'd worship some false gods, they'd worship some, something they shouldn't be doing, burning children to Molech, they'd be doing all their awful stuff. And then you'd have this group called the Ecclesia, the called out ones, the remnant. You have it in the story of Noah. He kills everybody on the planet keeps eight of them in a boat. You have Sodom and Gomorrah gets judged. He saves Lot and his family. You have a giant army that's with Gideon, and then he cuts it down to 300 people. There's, there's a called-out remnant principle in the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament starts, and he, Jesus arrives as the rock who comes and crashes. He lands during the time of the Ten Toes. He arrives in 3 B.C., his rock cut without hands crashes into the feet and his kingdom begins to grow in the earth. It's going to keep growing until it becomes the largest mountain that fills the whole earth, according to Daniel 2. So we have an opposite principle at work. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the principle was that there's always a remnant, that the majority walks away from the Lord, but the remnant stays with the Lord. What flips over into the new covenant with the kingdom is starts with a remnant. Jesus is the king who's come with his kingdom, and he begins to grow. And then there's 12 people, and then there's 70, and then there's 120 in Pentecost, and then 3,000, 5,000, multitudes. It's the reverse. There is no remnant in the New Testament. If you get out your Strong's Concordance and you look up the word remnant, the word remnant in the New Testament appears either to say 
uh, how few people will, re- will survive through some of the events of the book of Revelation, not a remnant of the church, a remnant of survivors, or it brings out in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that only a remnant, only some of the Jews will actually turn to the Lord. That's what it says in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Those are the two usages of remnant. To connect the idea of remnant bride or a remnant church is not true. It's not in the Bible. In the Bible, in the New Testament, the concept of ecclesia, the church in the New Testament, is that they're the called out ones and that the church is growing and growing and the kingdom is growing and it's increasing. Here's the relevance of the difference. It's not that in the Old Testament was Israel, the New Testament is the church. No, the church, the word church comes from ecclesia. It was in the Old Testament. The ecclesia was there in Israel, and the ecclesia is in the New Testament as well. It carries straight through. There is no replacement. It is a continuation. The church is not something brand new. The church is not something that the Old Testament prophets didn't see. The church has always existed from the very beginning. Noah on the ark was the remnant, the called out ones, the ecclesia. Gideon and his 300 were the called out ones, the remnant, his ecclesia. Elijah and the 7,000 that didn't bow their knee were the remnant, the ecclesia, the church. It has always existed. But once the kingdom was established, it then went from being a small remnant to expanding and becoming this large mountain filling the whole earth. The church is not new. The church is not New Testament. The church has always been there. The church is the remnant followers of God. And that changes over from being a small minority to being the majority in the New Testament. It's something that grows into the largest mountain. Are you guys following me? Okay, good. Because this is, this is a challenge for a lot of people who've, who've either heard that the church replaces Israel or they've heard that, um, uh, that, that we're not in the kingdom. Both of those I would strongly challenge on the basis of Scripture, what we really see from the Word. Now, part of the issue for a lot of us has been, uh, when did the kingdom arrive? Okay, so the first question, when did the kingdom arrive? Because there's a lot of people, I know you guys have been talking a lot about old covenant versus new covenant and, and the different covenants and when those transitions took place. And there are people who say that um, when Jesus was born, it was the beginning of the new covenant and the New Testament. So then you start looking through the ministry of Jesus and you go, is Jesus' ministry New Covenant or Old Covenant? Is what Jesus taught New Covenant or Old Covenant? You get to John the Baptist and you go, well, maybe he was the end of the Old Covenant and Jesus was the beginning of the New. And when Jesus started preaching, maybe that's when the kingdom came. Or people look at uh, him dying on the cross and he says, it is finished. Well, maybe that is when the new covenant was established and the old covenant passed away. You see how there could be many options here that people could really arrive at different answers, and, and people have arrived at different answers. That's why we're going we're gonna to take a look here together, um, because I, I, my perspective, as I read the word, is that all of those answers are partially true. 
that there's a progressive growth that's taking place. So when you look at the progressive growth, the first thing we have when you go back to Daniel chapter 2 is he tells him, King, you are Babylon. You are the golden head. After you will be another, that's Medo-Persia. After that will be the Greek. After that will be the Roman. After that will be the Ten Toes. Then the rock will crash in during that time period in the days of those kings, it says in verse 44. That's when he crashes in with his kingdom and sets it up, and it begins to grow. Now, I believe that when the king arrived in the manger in 3 BC, he brought his kingdom with him. The king shows up, he has kingship, he has dominion. Kingdom is king's domain. That's a shortened term. A kingdom is the domain of rulership that a king has. So the kingdom. Now the idea of the kingdom, he shows up and he brings in the kingdom in the manger. And then we kind of have a silence for quite a while while he's being raised. And the next thing we begin to see is John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness and he begins to declare, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. At hand didn't mean it's just out of reach. It meant it's here, it's now, it's within grasp. We can have it right now. It's present. The kingdom is here. So he's saying the present has, the kingdom has arrived in the present. It's here. So John the Baptist begins to declare it. Now Jesus goes out, he's baptized, and he begins to declare the same message. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. So the first message that Jesus begins to preach is the message of the kingdom. That is the beginning, the start, the launch of his ministry. From there, he spends the next three and a half years teaching about the kingdom. Now, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, but I don't believe that Jesus had stepped into the new covenant yet. Because covenants are cut by blood sacrifice. And so there wasn't a blood sacrifice yet. Jesus' ministry was actually Old Covenant. Jesus' Old Covenant ministry was to teach people about what the New Covenant is going to look like and to actually show them that they had messed up and misunderstood the Old Covenant for thousands of years. He's really reinterpreting it. You've heard it said, but I say to you, you turned my father's house into a, a, a marketplace, a den of thieves and robbers. His, his whole approach to ministry was not a new covenant. I know people say these different things. They say like, well, but Jesus said this about the tithe. Jesus said this about fasting. Jesus said this about, and they're usually trying to make the argument that, well, Jesus is new covenant. Jesus' ministry was not new covenant. Jesus' ministry was in the Old Covenant, reinterpreting it to them. He was helping them understand, but he wasn't saying, this is New Covenant. So we have to keep in mind that there's a shift going on. In fact, if you want to understand what Jesus was saying clearly, you have to understand that he wasn't, Jesus was not as much of a grace preacher as after the cross, see, part of the issue was before the cross, he was teaching them about the law. After the cross is when grace had been released. Before the cross, he has to get up and say things like, you say, don't kill people. I say, don't even have the thought of murder in your heart. 
You say don't commit adultery. I say don't even think about it. Jesus, if anything, was kind of like magnifying the law so they could really see how badly they were doing. He was going, look, you thought you were doing okay? You're not. That's why you need a savior. Me, this guy. He was really showing them, you guys are not doing as well as you think you are. That was the point of his ministry for three and a half years, is really to show them how poorly they were doing, not how, how they were getting everything right. Now, after three and a half years, he gets up on the Last Supper, and he says, this is my, my blood, this is my body broken for you. And he says, my blood shed for the confirming of a covenant with many. He's about to confirm the new covenant the next day. You understand that, right? He's got, he's got the transition in mind. He's talking about what's about to take place. I'm about to transition you into a new covenant. Now, before this, uh, in Matthew 11:11, 11, 11, he says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and the violent have been taking it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And people talk about the spirit of Elijah and this move of Elijah and this move of Elijah coming in the future. And they talk about that because they don't understand what this verse just told them. This verse just said, if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, when you hear someone get up and talk about how the spirit of Elijah and a movement of Elijah and something, something about Elijah in the future, that's when your little check mark should go off in your heart that you go, ah, I heard about this. That was John the Baptist. That already happened. That is not a future thing in any way. It has been fulfilled. It is a passage that tells you very clearly, Jesus is saying, this is amazing how non-controlling he is. And he just tells him, if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Matthew eleven fourteen. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And there are a lot of pastors who do not have ears to hear because Chris Valentin says it this way. He says, when, you're, when your income depends on you not understanding something, it's a lot easier to not understand it. And there's a lot of people who write these books about how a coming move of Elijah and Elijah this, Elijah that, spirit of Elijah, that is not a future thing. It was fulfilled. Jesus just told you it was fulfilled by John the Baptist. He was 